we move into Revelation 5, and I'd like to share a message with you entitled, The Lamb of God. Last week, we looked at Revelation 4, the throne of heaven. This week, Revelation 5, the Lamb of God. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The Lamb of God, which is honestly Revelation 5, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So much so that I named my twin boys after this chapter. For those of you that are worried, my boys are not named Revelation and 5, but I'll explain in a little bit. But I named my kids after something that God showed me in this chapter. And so we're going to read it together. For context, John is still in heaven. He's been invited by Jesus. He's been cycled up into heaven. And he is standing before the throne and he is witnessing the beauty and trying with frail human words to describe the fullness of the glory of God. The Father who sits on the throne and he describes it as precious stones and, and as and a rainbow of emerald and a sea of glass like crystal and the four living creatures and the elders around the throne. And he describes what he sees similar to what Ezekiel described and other prophecies in the Bible. It's very consistent. And we see that he is still in heaven at this point. He's, he's seen God on the throne. He's seen the seven flames before the throne representing the Holy Spirit. The four angelic beings represented as the lion, the ox, the man and the eagle, which is, uh, uh, represents the full witness of Jesus in the Gospels, and the 24 elders, which represent the church, represents you and I before the throne, and then these waves of worship. And, and John is still in the scene. He's just taking in all the worship and, and everything that's happening as, as all of creation brings glory to God. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation 5 and verse 1. So I'm going to read... The first four verses together this morning, let's read it together. It says, Revelations 5 and verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. No one found worthy. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy. I'm going to pray for us this morning and we're going to dig into Revelation 5 a little bit. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are the one who unveils. You are the one who reveals. You are the one who opens our hearts. We pray, God, that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened this morning, that we would see you, that we would know you, that we'd experience your presence, that we'd experience the word of God taking root in our hearts and, and creating and establishing an awareness of truth within us. We thank you, God, that you are God and we are not. We thank you that we worship you and not ourselves. We thank you, God, that our salvation lies in you and not ourselves. We thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that you speak to each of us this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. So many of us often wonder whether or not God has a plan for our lives. Have you ever wondered, like certain things happen in your life and you kind of think to yourself, is there a plan? Like, has God got this figured out? Like, what is happening? Is God still with me? Sometimes it's something, something silly like, you know, 
you drop your keys and they fall like into a drain between, you know, if you've ever dropped it in a drain grid and your keys go down, you're like, is there a plan in my life? Like, is, is God involved? Is God around? Because how do things like this happen, you know? Um, or when you're, when you're hammering a nail. How many of you have, I was doing this this last week. It's most fresh in my memory. Uh, my body hurts all over because I decided that this week I was going to be the DIY king and, uh, and try to, try to uh, fix everything in my house. And so, you know, when you're hammering a nail into the wall and you're like, I've got to do this well, you know, solid strikes, center mass of the hammer, you know, transfer all the momentum and all the weight directly into the nail so it goes straight in. And what happens on like the third strike, you hit it skew and it breaks out a chunk of wall like this, you know? And you pick up the wall and you're like, why God? You know, just, I don't understand. And you wonder, is there a plan in my life? Is, 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 does God see what I'm going through? Is he involved with me? And the desires that we have in our lives, they raise this question. It's not always a, you know, people think that these questions like, why are we here and, and what is the meaning of my life? People think that, that it's that the Bible that raises those questions. It's not the Bible. It's our very existence that raises the questions of meaning and purpose. The desires we have within us raise those questions. The sense that we all have of, is there more? Am I living to my full potential? Am I doing what God has called me to do? Is there a purpose for me? What on earth am I here for? Many people who don't believe in God or who try very hard to not believe in God. We spoke about that a few weeks ago when we said that the two tenets of atheism is that there is no God and I hate him. You know, G.K. Chesterton who said if there were no God, there'd be no atheists because people are trying to convince themselves that there is no God. And so they would say things like the purpose of life, this is very much kind of a a theory in in our world today, is to just enjoy nature and, and all that the universe has given us, as if the universe was a person or has some sort of personality. See, they can't do it without prescribing some sort of personality. Now the personality, now that the universe has a personality. Now you can interact with the universe, apparently. And I asked somebody once, can I phone the universe and order a pizza? Because I am hungry right now. If there's some universe thing out there, how do I get my pizza? You know, how do I get it here because now they've ascribed, you know, a personality. They've personified something that's inanimate. That's actually made up of, of, of many inanimate things. And so they would tell you that we're just here to enjoy nature and all that the universe has given us, to, to watch a sunset and to climb a mountain and to hug a dog, um, which is really popular, to travel and to experience and to, and to laugh. That's the meaning of life. But they almost say it with like a sense of, ish, do I really believe it? Because if there is no God, and there is no meaning, and there is no purpose, and the, then the universe is essentially, ultimately amoral, according to their, universe, uh, their, their, their worldview, amoral and meaningless. If there's no God, there is no meaning. And everything else we're doing really doesn't matter. Yes, enjoy yourself a little bit, whatever, but ultimately nothing matters if that's what you prescribe to. So they'll say, I'm just going to go out because, because nothing really matters, because you know, life is just about enjoying myself. I'm going to go and do what makes me happy. I'm going to go live my own truth. Uh, a while back, um, my little boy Jude was climbing on the counter at home, and, and, and Lee looked at him and said, hey Jude, get off the counter. And he looked at him and he said, I just want to live my only one life. Like, like, just leave me. I want to climb this counter. I just want to live my only one life. 
And that's pretty much what people say when we say there's meaning, there's purpose, there's calling, there's mission. They go, I just want to live my only one life. I just want to do what I want to do. I just want to be happy. Life is too short to not do what you love, etc., etc., etc. But all of this is essentially self-deception. Because if you don't believe in God, then you don't believe in meaning. I heard a story of Ravi Zacharias um, who was speaking at a university and uh, a guy got up and he declared that there is no meaning in the universe. Just kind of challenged him in this, in this moment. And, and Ravi Zacharias said, you don't, you don't believe that statement. He said, I do, I believe it. He said, no, you don't. He said, no, I believe that there is no meaning in the universe. And he kept saying to him, but you don't. And then eventually, Ravi Zacharias clarified and he said, if there's no meaning in the universe, then what you said has no meaning. So why are you saying it so passionately? If there's no meaning, then what you just said carries no meaning. And all of this is futile, so why argue? Why, why, why passionately pursue a point of view? And this is the self-deception that our world lives in at the moment, because if that was true, all things would essentially be temporal and ultimately inconsequential. And people choose to believe this despite the evidence to the contrary. They know in their hearts that there is eternity. They know in their hearts that there must be a creator. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us this. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. You see, God wants us to enjoy all things. He wants us to enjoy marriage. He wants us to enjoy family. He wants us to enjoy all the seasons of life in its time. It's all beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. You see, you can't get away from that eternity. It's in your heart. You have to lie to yourself to get away from it. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. No one can fathom what God has done, but he has set eternity in the human heart. That's why the, the book of Proverbs says that it's only a fool who would say in his heart, there is no God. Only fools would say that. Because creation and all the wondrous beauty we experience in the world, along with the longings of our own souls, prove that there is more, prove that there is a God. And this God, the Scriptures tell us, has a plan. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for our church. He has a plan for our city. He has a plan. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, you, Your eyes, God, saw my unformed substance. Before, when you were just spirit, before you even had a body, before you had been created in your mother's wombs, God knew your unformed substance, and all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. How amazing is that? God planned out every day that you would live before you had one of them, including today. Knowing that you would sit here today, knowing that you would be encouraged today. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only did God ordain your days, not only did God create you for a purpose, He then prepared beforehand, good works, a calling, a mission for you to walk in. And this is what we are passionate about helping people discover here at Anchor Church, that there is a calling for your life, that there is a destiny for your life, that God has a plan for your life, that every day was ordained, every good work was prepared. And that plan involves redemption, it involves meaning, purpose, power, 
And so in Revelation 5, we see God sitting on the throne and in his right hand. That right hand is a symbol. Whenever we see and we see it regularly, we see how Jesus, once he had conquered death, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand, in, especially in, in terms of the context of royalty, is always a symbol of authority and power. So Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, he says, you are my right hand. You are my authority. You carry my authority. When you say somebody is your right-hand man or right-hand woman, it's talking about somebody who carries your authority. And so Jesus sits down at the right hand, and in his right hand, with all of his authority, God has ordained a plan. He holds the scroll in his hand. That scroll that God holds in his hand has writing on both sides, front and back. In other words, there is no more space to write anything else on that plan. Why? Because it's a complete plan. The plan of God is complete. And what God holds in his hand on the throne is the plan of redemption for how he will renew all things, for how all things will be made new like we see at the end of Revelation. He holds the scroll, the plan of redemption, the renewal of all things in his hand, and it is a complete plan written on both sides, front and back. Nothing can be added or taken away. But what we see in these first four verses of Revelation 5 is that there's a problem. There's a problem here. God has the plan, and it's sealed with a royal seal. But there is no one worthy to break the seals and to set in motion the redemptive plan of God. The seal was, was common in letters or scrolls in those days. And once it had the king's seal on it, you could be punished by death for opening a, a, a breaking a seal on a letter or on a scroll without the proper authority. It was sealed with the authority of the king and only the one to whom it was addressed or the one who had the correct amount of authority could open it up. And so God has a plan and it has the king's seal on it. Who can open the plan of God. Who can set it in motion? Who has that authority? And the angel cries out, who has the authority? Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll and unleash the plan of God for redemption of our world? And there is no one found. No one is worthy to open this scroll. And so John begins to weep and to weep, and that word weep means to cry bitterly, and it doesn't just say, so I wept, it says, so I wept and wept. He's crying bitterly. You can imagine John standing there and beginning to just cry, just tears pouring down his face, this, this, this inner turmoil over the fact that there is no one found. And the reason why John weeps is because if there is no one to release God's plan of redemption, then there is no redemption for us then there is no salvation for us. Which means there's no redemption for him in this vision or for any of us if no one could open the scroll. Because either salvation is from the throne of God or there is no salvation at all. There is no other way to righteousness. There is no other way to enter into heaven, to be filled with the Spirit, to have fellowship with God. There is no other salvation to be found in any other religion or philosophy or self-help program. Anywhere in the universe, there is only one way to be reunited with God, and it's through 
his plan, his way, his salvation from the throne. And so John begins to weep. And I sometimes feel like if we could just once again get a glimpse of what he must have been feeling. Sometimes we treat our salvation with such commonplace, with such you know, apathy. It's just like, yeah, I'm saved, I'm a Christian. Do we even understand what that means anymore? That we get to have fellowship with the creator of heaven and earth. That we get to see that throne with the, the, the flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and the authority of God as the throne of grace. That we get to approach that throne in our time of need, knowing that our Father cares about us. Have we got a sense of awe for what it is that we have gained through the salvation that comes through Jesus and the hopelessness that we would feel if we didn't have it? If we knew that utter feeling of hopelessness for just a second, we would weep like John did. We would weep like John did. You see, even people that don't believe in Jesus, there's still a sense of hope because you still have time to turn around. When I was younger, I worked for a magazine, and one of my roles was to cover events, national events, sporting events, uh, festivals, Christian events, and, and so forth. And, and, um, and one of the things that I love to do once a year um, is to travel down to, to KZN to go and cover the Mr. Price Pro. And what I had to do was I got literally to sit in the tower, you know, where the judges sit and judge the surfers um, as they ride the waves. I got to sit there in the media box and, and, uh, and, and watch the surfing, and I got to interview all of the surfers. And the magazine I worked for was a Christian youth publication, and I got to speak to a lot of those guys that, that were Christian and were believers, find out what it was like on the world surfing tour. And I remember chatting to one of the guys who was on tour and had recently become a Christian, and I asked him the question, how did you get saved? And he said that um, he was the opposite of saved. I mean, the complete opposite. He was like a true hell-raising kind of, I actually, I'm not just not sure if there's a God. I want to teach every kid as in the surfing community, they call them groms. I want to teach every grom that I can to turn against religion and go live your only one life, right? Just go and like just surf and have fun and do whatever you feel like. He was an evangelist for the enemy. And now he's a Christian. And I asked him, how did this happen? And, and he said he went to bed at night. He was, uh, they were on tour and he went to sleep and there was a futon um, and it was really warm where they were. And, and so he opened up the sliding door and he fell asleep here on this futon next to this open sliding door with the ocean just outside. And he woke up in the middle of the night and he saw that a violent storm had arrived. And the, the trees, the palm trees, were literally bending to the point where they were about to snap off. And, and in the distance, he could see fire and there was this violent wind and things were just crashing around. This utter turmoil. He still says his first thought was, wow, the swell is going to be amazing in the morning. But then he realized that there was no wind coming through the sliding door that he, he couldn't actually feel any of what he was seeing. And in that moment, a voice said to him, this is hell and this is where you're heading. Just the supernatural vision like John had in that moment of this. And he says it wasn't the wind, it wasn't the palm trees breaking, it wasn't the fire, it wasn't the violence of the storm, it was the this fact that for one moment he had a sense of utter hopelessness. I am completely lost. There is not a second chance. 
There is not going to be another moment. There is not going to be a time when I can say, you know what, when I'm older, I'll serve God. But for now, I'm just going to do my thing. It is over. It's done. And I am lost. Full stop. He said when he experienced that feeling, it was like feeling his ribcage crumble inside of him. It's over. Helplessness. Hopelessness. That's hell. To know that you have missed your opportunity to be reconciled with God and that you are lost, full stop, no second chances, no restarts. It's done. He said he only ever experienced that feeling for an instant, but when he woke up, he could never go back. He gave his life to Jesus. He found the closest church that next morning, walked straight in. He said, I need a pastor to pray with me because I can't go back there. This is something what I imagine John feeling when there's a plan of redemption that God has, but no one worthy to open the scroll. No one's worthy to unveil and unleash the, the redemption of God and so he weeps and he weeps. And I promise you this, if you stood before the throne without hope, you'd weep as well. But this is where it gets good. In verse 5, the next verse, it says, Then one of the elders, which represents the church, said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. I want to pause there for a moment just to say that this is the mission of the church. People are weeping whether they're doing it knowingly or unknowingly on the inside of them with a sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness. And the 24 elders is us. And it is our job to go into this world and to say, do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed. He is worthy. He will open the scroll. He has set God's plan of redemption in motion for you. We are not called to be a silent church. We are not called to be a silent people. We are not called to draw back. We are not called to have a private religion. We are called to be the ones who cry out to the city, do not weep. Jesus has prevailed. This is the mission of the church to testify hope to a hopeless world that one has overcome and is able to redeem us all, to comfort the broken with a message of God's salvation. And that's why our vision here at Anchor Church is to share the hope of Jesus with our city. That's what we're here to do. So he says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, which fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David in the Old Testament. But it talks about the lion of Judah... And this lion of the tribe of Judah, because sometimes we read these things and we assume everybody knows what that is, but the lion of the tribe of Judah is a reference to Jesus as the lion who we spoke about last week represents the king. So the lion who comes out of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus was the king who came through the tribe of Judah. He was a member of the tribe of Judah, which is why when he was crucified, just to see how beautifully this is fulfilled, when Jesus, Jesus was crucified, what did the Romans put above him on the cross? King of the Jews. Lion, king of Judah, Jews. King of the Jews. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king from the Jews, has prevailed. He has triumphed. He's overcome. How did he overcome? Matthew 27 verse 66 says, So they went and made the tomb secure where Jesus was buried. And along with the God, they set a seal on the tomb. I don't know if if you're with me on this, but I just find it so beautiful that there is a scroll for the redemption of mankind that has a seal on it or has seals on it. And then there is a tomb that has a Roman seal on it. And says no one is allowed to open this grave unless they have the correct authority. Mary comes on a Sunday morning. The seal is broken. The stone is rolled away. He is the one who has triumphed. When Jesus put his hand on John's shoulder in in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am the one who was dead, and now I am alive, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. He has triumphed. He broke the seal on the grave. He can break the seal on the scroll. He's the one who releases the power of God, who releases the redemption of God into our lives. Jesus has authority not only over the Roman government, not not only over every nation or government or ruler or royal decree, but over death and Hades itself. And so the grave could not hold him and the seal on the tomb was broken, giving him the authority to break the seal in heaven and unveil God's plan. So here's John. He's just been told, the lion of Judah has overcome. So I can imagine if somebody said that to me, I want to turn around and I want to see this lion. I want to see this authority. I want to see the power of God. And this is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. I I was literally writing this sitting in a restaurant yesterday and I started crying while writing (laughs) this message just at the beauty of, of what this describes. Because in verse 6, John says, Then I saw, Behold, the lion has overcome his triumph. Then I saw a lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the creatures and the elders. Jesus in the center represented as a lamb. But I thought it was a lion, the king. See, this gives so much more insight into when Jesus says, if you will be the ruler of all or the leader of all, you must be the servant of all. Those who were last will be first in heaven. Contrary and you know, countercultural in our world. But he turns to see the lion, the king, the one who is worthy. And when he turns, he sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb as though it had been slain. A slaughtered lamb. God, help us to see this. This is the grace of God. This is the God whom we serve. This is his omnipotence. This is what makes him greater than any other God that we could imagine as human beings or that people could conjure up in their religiosity. This is the God. He is the one, the creator of heaven, slain for the ones whom he created. 
Nothing else in any philosophy or religion comes even close to this God who would humble himself and represent himself as a lamb slain for the sins of the world. What did John the Baptist say when Jesus arrived on the scene? When it was time for, for Jesus' baptism, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is the power of God. Gregory Boyd said, this is how God flexes his muscles by dying on a cross. That's how he overcomes sinners with his love. That's how he breaks down our defenses and our rebellion and our hard hearts by the greatness of his grace. This is the God that we serve. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who was slain. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and that is God's love for you. It's so beautiful to me. Yesterday as I was writing this, I, I literally tears, my boys were all playing and I had literally tears, I'm wiping them away. I just looked up and I said, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. I don't have to be hopeless. I have a future. I have an eternity. I have God's presence because I would, because of you, I would be lost if it wasn't for you. There have been moments in my life where I've wondered if God had redemption in store for me. And I remember one of those moments was when I was praying for God to bless me with, with more children. We had had Eli as a real miracle and we called Eli, Eli John, which means God is gracious because we knew that God had been gracious. But how many of you know sometimes it's harder to trust God the second time around? Like, okay, God, you've done it once, but can you do it again? Can you reveal your goodness and your love to me a second time? Can, how gracious are you? Have I tapped out your graciousness? How many of you have wondered whether God has given you everything that he felt you deserved and now he's kind of going to leave you there? Yes, God, you did that miracle. And yes, the other day you did that thing and now you did this thing, but geez, can I trust you for the next thing? How gracious are you, God? Is there a limit? And I wondered if God could do it again. I honestly had anxiety about it. Can God do it again? And then I didn't only have more children, I had twins. It's like God had a sense of humor. You think I can't do it again? Here's two. Take two. A double portion, literally. And it was that time that God spoke to me from Revelation 5. The lion of Judah, his power is in his grace, the lamb of God. Why do we think that God's grace is somehow limited? We have got too small a view of who God is and what his grace can do in our lives. It's why Jesus kept asking the disciples or saying to the disciples, Oh, you of little faith. You cannot tap out. You cannot go beyond the full measure of God's grace. It is unsearchable. He is the Lamb of God. And so I named my boys Leo and Jude, Lion of Judah. How did I know he's the Lion of Judah? Because just look at his grace. Not only is he gracious, but he is sovereign. 
and overwhelming and almighty in His grace. And something like that was nothing for Him to do. We haven't even begun to perceive the power of God that is in His grace for us. And that's why I named my boys Leo and Jude after the Lion of Judah who has triumphed. This is the, the Lamb who conquered. The, the, the Lion who conquered. The Lamb who was slain. Revelations 5, 6-10. to 10, I'm just going to read this. It says, The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down again before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every nation, sorry, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The lamb had seven horns, which in prophetic uh, symbolism represents authority. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you read the prophecies of Daniel and so forth. Those horns represent actually nations and authority that would rise up, empires that would rise up. And the seven is the number of completeness like we've covered before. And so he has all authority. And seven eyes representing the Spirit of God, the full counsel of God, the full Holy Spirit, in full measure. And he takes the scroll from God's right hand, from his authority. He had the correct authority to take that scroll. And as he takes it, everyone begins to worship. All honor is due to him. All praise, all glory. He is worthy because he was slain. Each of the elders that fell before God had a harp. In today's terms, if each elder represents a church, I could almost say that every harp represents a band. The point is, is that what was due to the slain lamb, the overcoming, conquering lamb of God was worship. Every church should be a center of worship. Because we are worshiping the one who stands in the center. And so they have a harp and then the bowls of incense. Incense in biblical and prophetic language always represents prayer. That's your prayer. You wonder, do my prayers matter? Does God hear my prayers? Apparently, they get poured out before the throne. The prayers that you pray. If that was a reality in your life, how much more do you think that you would pray? If you realize that the Lamb, because of the Lamb, God can hear my prayer. Because of His grace, God can hear what I need. He can answer me. Because of the redemption we have in Jesus, we can now pray to God and be heard. And our prayers are poured out before Him like incense. And this is why we are told to pray in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Because it's only by Jesus that God can hear our prayers. It's only through Him that we have been redeemed and have this place in the throne room. Because of the righteousness that we have in Him, we can pray and our prayers are instantly before Him. We are a kingdom of priests to serve our God and to reign on the earth. And many people believe this refers to a future millennial reign of Christ and 
and even beyond that in the, the time of the new Jerusalem when Christians will literally reign over the earth. This is mentioned many times, and I don't have time to go into it this morning. We'll cover it later in Revelation. But there is a time where, where Jesus says, for example, if you're faithful over little, he says in one of the Gospels, I will make you ruler over many cities. Our faithfulness carries authority in the future. We're kingdom of priests to serve our God, and we will reign on the earth. Finally, Revelations 5, 11 to 14, it says, Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels. Now we, for the first time, go beyond the throne, beyond the 24 elders, a little bit further it goes. And I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. We go out a little bit further. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on, all, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, we've now gone from the throne, to the living creatures, to the 24 elders, to the angels, to all that is in the earth, all of creation, saying, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and the sea and in all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the redemption of God. He died for us. No one else has done that. Nothing else in our lives, deserves the same amount of honor and commitment and loyalty as what we can give to the throne, to the Lamb. No one else, I don't know about you, but no one else has died for me and for my sins being innocent himself but the Lamb. What are we worshiping with our lives and why are we spending so much time worshiping our own selves and our own thoughts and our own ways and our own wants rather than going before the throne. You, you are king. You are king. You died for me and you deserve the honor of what my life can be. See, when you see the grace of God, the Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads us to repent. Church, can we humble ourselves? Can we humble ourselves? Can we stop putting up a fight with the throne of heaven? Can we see that God loves us more than anything we could imagine? And can we come to a place of surrender? My life's not my own, God. I'm not here to choose for myself what I want. I've been created as a, as a people to serve God. And as we're faithful, we will rule over the earth. All the creation, all of creation declares His worthiness. And the four living creatures cry out, Amen, it shall be so, and everyone falls down to worship again. Man, we've got to praise God for His grace. Oh, us of little faith.
We worry about so many insignificant things, but the Lamb of God has overcome. He has redeemed us for himself, and he is worthy of all honor and all praise. The lion is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Amen? Amen. Can we pray this morning? Will you stand with me? Let's pray.